It's giveaway time again, finally! We're giving away a hardcover Legendarium edition of Crossroads of Twilight. We figured this would be a reasonable book to devalue by scribbling all of our marginal notes in it and giving it to the lucky winner. Except this time, luck will have nothing to do with it. Uh, this time you can enter to win by leaving a review in iTunes. So here are the rules. It needs to be five stars and it should either be snarky or funny or sarcastic or insulting or any combination of those things. And since I can't contact you through iTunes, make sure you copy and paste that review into a private message to the podcast on Facebook or Reddit, or you can email it right to me at craig at thelegendariumpodcast.com. Good luck, and welcome to The Legendarium. Fallon Luca and his circus are the shuttle that weaves the threads of time. <laughs> <laughs> That's why everyone has to pass through them at some point in time. Yes. Welcome, everybody, to the Legendarium Podcast. This is episode number 144. We're coming up on 150. That's pretty cool. Uh, we've been around far, far too long. And uh, today we're talking about Crossroads of Twilight. This is one of two discussions. Yes, it was asked uh, once or twice on Reddit whether we would actually try to jam uh, two discussions into Crossroads of Twilight. Yes, we are. Darn it, we said two episodes per book, and that's what we're going to do, even if uh, you get as bored listening to this as you were reading the book. They have to have something for solitary confinement in those Swedish prisons. <laughs> exactly. And, and heaven help what you're going to get in episode two. All right, and I am Craig Hanks, your host, and over there, he's about as fun as Perrin when he's on the hunt for Fael, thinking about wolves and scratching his beard. It's Ryan Bruckman. And about as useful, so... yeah. And he's like book 10, completely useless, yet for some reason we keep him around anyway. It's Ken Johnson. I just look so good on the shelf. And he's as fertile as Robert Jordan's typewriter, and I have it on good authority that he also dings when he finishes. It's <laughs> Kyle Lemon. I'm actually Elaine's real baby daddy. <laughs> uh, all right, I think I won with that one. So. That was solid. That was as solid as <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> well, uh, you know. Damn it, Ken. Too far. <laughs> no. All right. <laughs> so today, Crossroads of Twilight. Now, uh, one thing that I generally do on the first episode of each book is I do some sort of uh, of recap. I, I recap the plot of the book. And uh, I'm not going to do that today because there was no plot of the book. And so it, it, it just can't, it can't be done. Uh, but Kyle, maybe I'll kick it to you and ask you basically what happens in this book. Can you give us a... a 30 to 60 second rundown of what Crossroads of Twilight is. Yeah, I'll give you like a one sentence rundown. I'm it, excited. It's the reaction to the beacon. The beacons are lit <laughs> and Gondor calls for aid, basically. Now, basically, it's it's really the, the book that Robert Jordan catches all of his other storylines up with what happened in Winter's Heart with the cleansing of Sidene and all of that. So it's basically what was going on during this time um, with all of our other characters. So... Matt is coming out of the the palace. He's got two on in stow. We are or in tow, not stow. Um, well, both. I can't. Yeah, well, you she's know. small enough. She's stowed um, away in a carpet. It's the return like of Val and Luca's menagerie. Oh, sweet Moses! <laughs> um, Elaine takes a really long bath and talks about <laughs> politics. Um, and Perrin and her mopes. baby. I don't know if you know this, but she's pregnant. Yeah, Perrin mopes for a while. I just said I was the real baby daddy. Perrin mopes for a while and then does some sweet stuff at the end, um, which 
I guess you could argue whether that pays off for all the moping or not. Um, there's some interesting dark friend activity, and yeah, pretty much everybody is like, whoa, what's this beacon? And that's all that happens. <laughs> so I was telling Ryan earlier that uh, the entire time I was reading this book, what was that? That Ryan's watch? Something's beeping like crazy. Uh, I was telling Ryan earlier that uh, the whole time I was reading this book, I had uh, Perrin in my head as Harrison Ford. Very much his voice, <laughs> except that in this case, he was saying, uh, what, what was he saying? I'm I trying need, to find my I wife. I need to find my wife. <laughs> and then Tommy Lee Jones, constantly through this book, I had Tommy Lee Jones saying, <laughs> so Tommy Lee Jones is Slayer. That was yeah. There you go. There you nice. go. We've cast it. There you go. <laughs> I seriously, yeah. Um, there was there was a lot of trepidation for me. This is the book that I got stuck on when I originally read The Wheel of Time, and uh, it, it, the the whole series wasn't done at that point. I think there were two or three books left, but I had gotten up to this to book ten, and I got halfway through or something, and realized that I had forgotten. Uh, or never even absorbed everything that had happened in the book up to that point. And so I was listening to it, to it on audiobook at that point. And so I restarted the entire thing and said, okay, I'll try again. And the exact same thing happened. And so I gave up and said, all right, well, I guess I'm done for now. But this time, doggone it, I finished the book. And I gotta say, it was not so bad once we were about two-thirds to three-fourths done, somewhere in there. Uh, I remember it was chapter 21 when we got the dark friends chapter and uh i i don't know if this will turn out to be true but it's essentially confirmed to us that shaidar haran is the dark one embodied and he shows up in the white tower and uh is going after whoever that black aja person is Alvia. And, oh yeah not mm -hmm. alviar not alviar but uh, uh masana yes Mas masana well masana oh is it alviar yeah so alviar is, is the black aja so what happens in that scene, which was actually one of my favorite scenes, it's one that I wrote down in, in this book, um, Elida and Alviarin kind of square off. And Elida right. finally kind of gets her groove back because she says that, uh, you know, Alviarin is, has committed treason. She just has to find the proof. So Al Alviarin freaks out because she thinks, oh, Elida knows, I'm a dark Elida knows that I'm a dark friend. Yeah. So she goes to her magical shelf of Turangrial, I guess, that she got from... She touches. Masana. She touches her uh, dark. Her mark. dark mark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, but she activates whatever that Tarangrial is to summon Masana in her, great emergency. Her very own red rod. Exactly. Yeah. Her own red rod. Um, so it brings Masana, and she's kind of like, "What's going on? What's the big deal?" Well, Alviarin's freaking out because Elida took the stole, the keeper stole from her. She's no longer the keeper, or whatever. And during this whole exchange with Masana and. Alviar and Shida Haran shows up and basically gives Masana the business. And uh, Alviarin's freaking out. And it's from Alviarin's point of view that, like you said, we kind of get a confirmation, at least in Alviarin's mind, that Shida Haran is the Dark One incarnate. Sweet. Because yeah. he was... claims her. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when, when you start using the possessive, like, you are now mine. Like, okay, that's, and that's he, a pretty yeah, good sign. Yeah. That, and he marks her somehow. We're not really sure. Touches her forehead and she goes flying back. Like it's but he a, basically like... Ups her midichlorian count. Yeah, yeah, like it's a Dark One revival. But yeah, he marks her somehow. And now he says like, Masana won't harm you anymore. I don't know if that works for all of the Chosen or not. Masana no cry. 
Uh, okay. I was going to go with Masana, you ugly thing. <laughs> well, I don't think that's a reference that will be understood outside of Utah. No, but as long as you guys so, got it, I'm happy with it. All right. Uh, all right. Well, this this book was, yeah, like I said, not so, not so hard. It, it's uh, kind of disappointing now looking back that I only made it as far as I did on those first two tries uh, because, yeah, it, it got okay at the end. But there is that first half or first three quarters or whatever to get through. And those are pretty painful. And it kind of goes into a question that we got on Reddit. Somebody was asking us what uh, what we would cut out if we were to cut something out. And uh, Kyle and I, you were talking, Kyle and I, Kyle, you and I were talking about this earlier. We were. Um, about how... I and you. <laughs> about how he really, I think, really messed up the the cadence or the structure of books nine and ten in a big way and maybe you can expound on that a little bit i think that this was this part of the story was a casualty of publishing without having the full story written and knowing like where the best cuts would be um because if you were to do this as a as a film and you were to look at every scene and decide where to cut it up and, and edit it we were talking about how, well, one, first you'd cut out all of the succession of Andor and just get rid of it because it's worthless. Yeah. And whatever. But with this, the problem with book 10 is that we already, there's no suspense because we already know what the big beacon of side in and side R is. That well, was the and big not grand only, reveal. Not only do we know what it is, but we know how it turned out. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we, we already know the big grand payoff. And so there's no real suspense and wanting to figure that out in this book. And that's supposedly a lot of the driving force behind the characters. Because like I said earlier, this is where RJ basically caught his storylines back up to what happened in book nine. And so if you had had book nine and book 10 stories already written, you could easily cut this a different way or edit it a different way to while Rand and Nynaeve are having this giant epic battle with the whole cleansing of Sidene and everything. You just stretch that out by inserting Matt's and Perrin's and everybody else's point of view during that battle. So like everybody's responding to the big beacon of power that's going on. And so the whole time the reader would be like, oh man, what's going on? And the payoff would be at the end of book 10. Or like we said, you, there's enough there to cut that you could have 9 and 10 be one book. You really it, it might be a little bit longer. Yeah. It might be more of a Shadow Rising fires of heaven's size because this is significantly smaller than those books Mm -hmm. but there's enough story that could be cut that could be cut and this could be one book and that's where back earlier in the other other podcasts i've been saying it really feels like he's writing two books or he's publishing two books for actually writing one story and And it would benefit from having that done and and having a re-edit if i were his editor or if I were a screenwriter trying to to uh, translate this to screen, then every storyline, uh, each each storyline that you're following would have a crescendo and it would peak at the moment when Rand and Nynaeve start that cleansing. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to imagine. There's the the moment when Egwene. It happens with Egwene. It happens with Matt. Where when that starts, when that beacon lights up. Everybody kind of like looks off into the distance, but then that's it. It's just kind of this weird background thing that's happening. 
And I get that that's probably a little more realistic, but for the sake of the story, it would be really cool if that it was in the middle of some battle, or maybe in Egwene's case, if she's in the middle of the um, she's in the middle of whatever they call the audience with the the yeah the, the hall the hall the, ha- the hall of the tower, and she's trying to convince them of something, and then all of a sudden they all like freaking like faint, mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and they're freaking out. It would be really good if this had happened, like we said in. It, at the same time, mm-hmm. narratively, and that and it had yeah. been at the peak of all of these storylines. They all but stop instead and look he, west. You know, yeah, whatever. instead he kind of. Yeah, the way that I would do it is you would you would chunk up what actually happens at the end of book nine with Rand and Nynaeve and and all of the Forsaken and and yeah. all the different circles that are battling, and you go you cut in and out of that more frequently, and the cuts would be longer. So you'd go and you talk about Perrin and what's going on with Perrin and any of the Aes Sedai or Ashiman that are with him would be talking about the beacon and then all of a sudden you'd go to Matt and then it's kind of a similar thing. And then kind of like when, uh, at the end of whatever book it was, was eight or nine mm-hmm. when, uh, when Rand was having the battle with the Sean Chan and it kept yeah, cutting. Yeah. It was every few paragraphs he would cut back and forth mm-hmm. on that point of view. And it made it very interesting yeah. to read. And I, and I feel like if you took that angle on it or that like writing strategy from a storytelling point, um, and just stretched it out a little bit over the course of, the whole story of nine and 10 book nine and 10. And again, like you said, you'd have to cut several things that are worthless, but if you did that, it would be a much better payoff. Like not that, not that the cleansing wasn't an awesome payoff. It was, that was a it great was moment. Fantastic. Yeah. But it makes everything that's happening in book 10 worth reading and worth that. Like it gives it back the, the suspense because, like you said, we already know what the payoff is for all of this. Right. And so there is no drive forward to find out what is that beacon? What's going on? Because it really doesn't matter at this point how everybody else reacts to it necessarily. Because we already know what's what the outcome is. All right. We want to know after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So, okay. Now that we've gotten through at least some of our book 10 complaints. Uh, maybe we should go to the Reddit thread because I got to say thank you very much Reddit people for uh, some really, really good participation this week. Uh, I asked for you to submit your questions for our Crossroads of Twilight podcasts. And uh, so I've got the first one here um, and I want to kick this one to Ryan because Ryan is uh, the the best person on the podcast uh morally speaking when Perrin this I is, knew this was coming my way yep uh <laughs> Harvey Greenfield asks when Perrin finally stops moping and sharply interrogates the the captured Shido warrior does he and so uh just a refresher for anybody if it's been a while for you he cuts off the hand of a Shido captive with his axe and uh as a form of torture and he gets nothing out of him but anyway uh let's see where was I? Where I, does he finally cross the line into being irredeemable? Well, he married Fael like you know, seven <laughs> books ago. So, um, <laughs> can his cruelty be justified now that we know the captive truly didn't have any useful info to give? Go, Ryan. Uh, is he crossed the line of irredeemable? No. Uh, nope. It's a bad decision in terms of his own personal morality. Uh, but if we've learned anything about Perrin is that Fael has destroyed any the sense of logic that he has. Um, 
Not, not not just logic. I mean, you throw morality in there too. Yeah, it's she. He his compass is pointed directly at Fael and nothing else. Yeah, Ooh, nice, good lines. Nice. Good. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, is he irredeemable? No, especially considering the very next thing he does is get rid of his axe. What he, does he do with it? He chucks it at a tree and walks yeah, away. It's the cover image it. of the ebook. He yeah. puts the axe oh, in the okay. tree and then walks away from it, telling Elias, you know, you know, the day that you told me. Uh, that I would appreciate, that I would, I don't remember exactly the line there, but it was the day I need to get rid of it. And so he gets rid of it, which also frustrated me because you still have work to do with that axe. Um, yeah. So just. It's, it's his own version of I'm Spider-Man no more. He's going to go back to it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he's going to go back to that, to his axe, but he's going to have to, to come back to it. And he has to, he's going to have to deal with this. That's the one thing is here's where his chance to be redeemed is when it comes time and he's faced with another decision like this. Does he make the same decision? Does he make a better decision? What is he What is he going to do from there? Um, and does it make it more justifiable or, or less justifiable because they don't learn anything? No. The decision is, when the decision is made, regardless of the outcome, it's, that's where the problem is. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's, uh, then you're getting into ends justify the means territory. Right. And yeah. Oh, he cut off his hand, but he learned something useful. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. Right. From a moral standpoint, the point is whether he did it or not. Right. Now, do I do I think less of Perrin, or do I? Well, not kind of, kind of that's, a, <laughs> that's a hard line. But honestly, I I don't really have a hard time giving Perrin this one because I this is his like I said this is his moral compass. I don't think it was right, but I'm not in the realm of that's not believable, or I don't want to hear about you anymore, or I'm angry at you for making that decision. It's just uh, you. It's. So watching your friend go back to that ex that you know that's going to be bad, you know, or doing something else, you just know that it's this isn't going to turn out well. But as long as they deal with it, it's going to be the case. Right. So. Right. Okay. Ken, thoughts? When the hot better chick is right there, you go get her. I'm just saying. <laughs> no. your, your morality, Ken, is is amazing. No, yeah. I, I, I honestly, it's it's one of those things where you can understand the desperation that he's in and why he did it. It doesn't justify what he did, but you can understand the desperation that, that led him to that point. And so I mean, you can see the reasoning not to, not to, not yes, to uh, understand. Yeah, yeah. Not to, not to justify it, but, but then he, he kind of, he kind of walks it back. He kind of redeems himself. He, he goes and does his little penance, you know, with the action, realizing this is not the way. And well, I'll, and I don't want to make excuses for him, but at the same time, how much he's being pushed to be a leader and what a lot of people are saying a leader should do or be allowed to do. I mean, you're going to see this with everybody who is a leader, whether it be Matt, Rand, Perrin. Um, we've seen it with Rand already a few times that the decisions you make as a leader, you know, sometimes you have to make hard decisions and whether or not that's right. that's the right thing to do. And this case is an, is an odd gray area in the sense that this isn't the battle of good or evil. This is the battle to get his wife back. Well, and the narrative was kind of pushing up to that, make the hard decisions, Perrin, because you're the leader. Because, I mean, they said that several times in the chapters leading up to it. They want him to be the sort that will say, yeah, go ahead and torture him, do whatever you need to do. And at least he had the, this is going to sound really bad, but at least he had the cojones to be the one to do it himself. Right. He, instead he, Ned, of just, he Ned Starked him. He totally he did. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's like the very first thing in Game of Thrones. The very first lesson that you ever yeah. learn in Game of Thrones is if you're going to don't command somebody to do something yeah. that you're not willing to do don't, yourself. Yeah. The man mm-hmm. who casts a sentence should swing the sword. Should swing the sword. Should, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then you see the very next chapter, you see Matt, 
not swing the sword, but make the but levy the sentence when uh, the Suldam is running and he, you know, says crossbow, you know, orders the crossbow. Well, yeah, to but shoot he doesn't back. know how to shoot but a he crossbow. Doesn't, exactly, so he doesn't. That's different. He would have done it, I'm sure. But in back to back chapters, you see Perrin and Matt make those hard decisions that leaders mm-hmm. make, and it, it'll be interesting to see the implications for their characters going forward. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Also. This also from Harvey Greenfield. Just how many weevils is too many weevils to keep in one sack of grain? Uh, so the weevils, this is a thing. Weevils wobble, but they, they don't fall down. Don't fall out of the sack. Uh, so weevils, I had to look it up. Turns out I've had them before in a sack of flour when I was like mm-hmm. a kid or something. So I, I didn't ever know what they were. I just thought, you know, they're bugs. That's They're just a thing. We threw the flour out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it turns out they're incredibly gross. I found a picture on Wikipedia. There you can see it if you want to. Prime. Ryan, I think you're the only one who can see it. I've seen weevils before. We had, okay. them in, we had them in a sack of flour growing up. Did you? We had yep. them in cereal growing up. Yeah, to yeah. quote uh, Master and Commander, you always choose the, the lesser, lesser of, of two, two weevils. weevils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that one. It was boring. <laughs> it was like the book 10 of movies. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. Uh, but that okay. was a great line. Um... So I I might have glossed over this. Uh, it was kind of a tacked on little thing on Reddit there. But I did want to note that uh, this is, it feels like the Dark One is doing a, a sort of Exodus style. That's exactly what I thought. It's like, it feels like the next plagues. plague. Yeah. Right. And so, he, well, he couldn't drown, or he couldn't uh, burn them all out with the drought. And so now he's going to send the, the plague of weevils. Weevils. Which is. Not quite as inter- Which intimidating it, as locusts. But. It makes me wonder if, is this something like at a certain power level that he's regenerated to, he can do the next thing? Because, I mean, the first time they had like the endless summer and or the, and then they had the forever winter and now it's weevils and, and you know, drought. Yeah, like, it's, it's like the mummy. Yeah, he the just progressively, he he's able to do one <laughs> thing further. Something Here come like locusts that. or uh, <laughs> flies to consume the weevils. Why not just really do it all at once or something more like see, that? The more of the Dark One seals that break, yeah. the more he can ah, touch sweet. the world. Now I can do the weevil trick. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Unlocked. <laughs> yeah, his achievement bar next, pops it's up. It's the next, on level. next box. He's Achieved weevils. <laughs> can do weevil spell. Nice. <laughs> uh, would you? Would the will you? weevils. The wheel weevils. The will weevils. <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, would you, how, how hungry would you have to be to eat bread with what you thought was like little whole grains, but were in fact weevils? Probably like lunchtime. <laughs> yeah. um, I, actually, I actually had this discussion with, uh, with my wife just the other day because um, an athlete that I admire uh, posted that he was trying this new uh, powder and it's all crickets. It's cricket powder oh gross and i was like that's disgusting and then i thought about it and i looked up more stuff and I, I guess insects are going to become a bigger part of western culture food um and i think as long as i don't know it in its form like if i'm not seeing a full-bodied weevil in my bread i'm probably okay <laughs> but uh yeah if it's just a little black flex i'm probably i'd probably be okay with it Last, as long yeah. as you just call it protein powder or chia seeds yeah. According to animals.mom.me, 
first time I've ever seen that particular That's URL. Uh, uh, weevils, whether in larval or adult stage, are not harmful to humans or animals. Although it may, se may seem unsavory to you, they can be eaten along with any food they have infested without causing any ill effects. But they don't fall down. But yeah. So, like I said, uh, this may be the most boring pair of podcasts that we do. Welcome to the Legendary Podcast. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's uh, let's move on. So thank you. The very dietary much. value of weevils. We are we are really <laughs> we are full for this. service. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so Pranavro asks, uh, <laughs> you should that that's a Reddit handle, by the way. I don't know how to say it. Craig had a stroke in the middle of the <laughs> <laughs> saying the name. You should also start talking about how the characters are slowly coming to cross purposes. Uh, all the Emmons fielders start off pretty close to each other, but now we have Rand's Ashamon bonding Aes Sedai without their permission, especially Loghain, which is likely to piss off Egwene. The manor, the banner of Monethrin and Lord Perrin, which is likely to piss off Elaine. Matt is marrying a Shanchan, again, likely to alienate Egwene. Uh, it would be interesting to see how RJ and Sanderson handle these conflicts or if they will just get swept under the rug. I can only assume that anything involving Egwene will be swept under the rug, at least in importance, even if he spends three more books on it. Uh, but it doesn't. Elaine or Egwene? Elaine. Elaine's okay. stuff no. doesn't matter ever at all. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, well, especially in this book, it shouldn't. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, uh, characters crossing purposes and possibly pissing each other off. I think this is actually a a very good thing because this is another one of those, as we were joking about, you know, level five Dark Lord powers here. The work, if you're going to have to face an enemy, you divide them. Divide and conquer. So discord. Get, yeah. Find out ways you can do that. And it may not even be the Dark One. It's A lot of it's not the Dark One. It's just how, you know, the Shan Chan are versus, you know, uh, let's not forget about the Children of Light and these other groups that are out there. I mean, everyone's got a different perspective of how they're going to go to Tarman Gaiden and everyone's going to have to reconcile that and I think that it, those things had better not be swept under the rug because you have to fight with these people for the end of the world um, and if you write it off with well I guess it's just the end of the world so we're going to all have to get along until we do that that's really not a not very good writing in my opinion yeah. um, but maybe you know that might happen but these these Taviran leaders in Perrin, Matt, and Rand have all been sent to where they've been sent for a reason because the side of good has to gather every every single person they can get and make figure out how to make them work. And so why not make these likable, for the most part, characters be your your connecting points? What do you think, Kyle? Um, it's one of the most I, I it's one of the most frustrating things as a reader, but also like I understand it from a logistical standpoint and also from like a writing standpoint is that if they would all just get into a room and talk to yeah, each other we've talked about this oh, before. you know that yeah they would all probably be able to be like oh we all have actually we have similar purposes like we're not i mean the ultimate goal like ryan said is everybody's trying to prepare for the last battle the problem is is that everybody thinks that they're the one that knows the best way to do that and they don't trust like for example Egwene is always talking about how she doesn't really necessarily trust Rand. Like somebody needs to guide him. I mean, that's the whole I should I said I shtick is somebody's got to guide the Dragon Reborn, and who knows? Like nobody knows. Like 
He's the one's been here. Yeah, nobody no, was at nobody the knows, last one. Nobody knows what to do any better than he does. Um, but that's the thing is like, ultimately they all have the same purpose. Like, Matt's gonna be marrying the daughter of the Nine Moons, which will probably piss off Egwene because she's she doesn't like Sean Chen. But like, in the grand scheme of things, oh hey, now we have a really important ally that has ties to one of our enemies. If you're looking at that, that's actually probably a good thing, you know, but they're looking at it surface level. And so what it really comes down to is can all of these main characters take a step back and look and really focus on the bigger picture and not worry about these, you know, cross roads, roads or the, but they're like what they're like, there are different goals that they have that are conflicting. And, uh, Really, it makes for interesting writing, but and it's that's what makes the conflict in the story. But I don't think that necessarily they're at different purposes. Um, I was really, really wishing that Rand and Nynaeve would have said something, anything to Egwene before they went off and cleansed Sidene, because the the chapters with Egwene uh, wrestling with the Hall of the Tower. She's going at it with them, and and the whole thing is, what do we do about the Black Tower? And do we ally ourselves with them? What do we do? And the main conflict, the point of conflict in that uh, discussion is, well, Sidene is tainted, and we can't trust these Ashaman. And I'm sitting there for like two or three chapters going, oh my gosh, it, this well, doesn't yeah. matter. And, and even to step back further, the real point of what brought that discussion on was they need to link with the Ashaman to build these circles to combat this forsaken weapon. weapon. This yeah. super that weapon. They're yeah. assuming that what just happened with all of the beacon sighting inside our power was some giant forsaken weapon that just wiped out Shadar Logoth. I think it was like a three mile radius and like a mile right. and a half deep or something. So they're thinking, oh crap. What do we do? This is some weapon that we have to battle. And like Avienda even says to Gwen in the World of Dreams, you know, what if the Forsaken don't have a weapon and you're just assuming that they do? And Egwene kind of brushes it off or whatever. But like you said, had Nynaeve and Rand or or anybody that's in the know, like let them know what was going on, or even after the fact, say, Oh, by the way, that huge giant beacon that you were <laughs> freaking out about, that was me. It's not the Forsaken. That changes that argument, right? Um, like a million percent, you know. I well, and we have traveling, so it, maybe drop someone nearby and just take a look and see what's happening, yeah. and you can see. Oh well, now we know what's going on here. Maybe we'll we'll go back and let them know. But well, and, and Elaine's got or Egwene's got this this fancy new you know dream cell phone. You know, call her up, Nynaeve. Mm-hmm. I know you can do it and say, hey, that was us. The dream cell phone. Yeah. Well, just that she can talk to him in her dream. Oh, so she right, does right, the thing right. with Elaine. Where she says, Elaine, meet me in the usual place or whatever. And then, yeah. the, then Avienda like comes. Tell her on Riyadh voicemail. But still, more, it you know, it's, it's like AOL, but still when you, I, uh, uh, you. But to your point, Ryan, yeah, you should just send somebody to a hilltop a little ways away and let them see the pornographic images in the sky. Uh, <laughs> and and then they're like, oh, uh, that is disconcerting. And my, then they go hand. back. Yeah, that's right. I need your well, hands. The uh, thing that strikes me as like, what's wrong with you people? Is that they they do, they assume that it's the Forsaken, and it never once crosses their mind, even when whatever random named Aes Sedai, I can't remember because there's ten thousand named Aes Sedai. Oh my gosh! Yeah. However, 
she says something along the lines of, I tested the residues. There was a lot of CIDAR that was used, obviously, but there was even more citing that was used, like Dragon Mount compared to like a molehill or whatever right. she compared it to. And like, it doesn't cross any of their minds to think, oh, there's a dragon reborn out there who can yeah. channel Sidene with who knows how much power. And so they don't, that doesn't even cross their mind that that's a possibility. They immediately go to, it's this forsaken weapon. And it's like, okay, even Cadswain says, it's probably a good thing that Shadar Logoth is now no longer here. But it's like, maybe that was Rand that did that. Maybe, se- like, maybe they should send somebody. To go and ask? Don't be uh, ridiculous. <laughs> well, and I, here's the thing is no one or people are not going to believe it anyway. If it's going to be like, it's frustrating, but you, no one's going to believe that the said that the taint is cleansed for a while. Like yeah. other than the users. Until, until guys stop going crazy. Even and, and, and who knows if how they, are they going to be able to prove that? I was going to say, and who knows if if they even stop going crazy? I mean, so, maybe they stay at their current level of craziness. And with, I mean, even with all this, if if we say, you know, they go, they travel to a hilltop, and they look and they see a giant beacon. Oh, here's what's going on. They're not going to necessarily know. Oh, I've seen. Oh, yeah, I can see what he's yeah, doing. He's wiping don't... the taint on Shadar Logoth <laughs> and making well, that work. Like, I, they're but, not going to believe it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take a while. Shadow Logo, the wet wipe. <laughs> don't, don't wipe and your I, And I agree with that, man. But, but at the bare minimum, they would know it was Rand and Nynaeve and not, not, the forsaken. not a Forsaken weapon. Well, um, And then it goes back to Craig's, um, where he was talking about how they were arguing about what to do with the Black Tower. And, well, they're all crazy. And, like, even if they still believe that they're going to go crazy, at least that would change their minds on how to approach that. Because they no longer need i'm air quoting here need to link with the ashaman to combat a forsaken weapon so then the hall would just say eh, screw those guys and so a question here is does robert jordan want me to hate Egwene and all those Aes Sedai, even the rebels because no but i do i know you do <laughs> no but uh but that's kind of it's like it, it's it doesn't seem like good writing unless he wants me to hate them well, I think it goes back to the Reddit question. I think he's building a conflict. I think that he's he's but putting it feels, them... Yeah, it feels kind of artificial. Uh, I don't know if it's artificial because I think Egwene is who she is and yeah. she's the she is the one that knows everything one of the and wants that to be in it, charge. It, it feels artificial partly because I kept thinking through those chapters, shouldn't some white Aja sitter be standing up and saying... Uh, Logic says we can't assume all these things we're assuming. Logic says we need more information before we can logically come to a logical conclusion about what is happening. Get that logic yeah. out of here. <laughs> I, I would say that yes, with the exception of I don't know that we're truly understanding the scope of this beacon and what happened. Because if a giant mushroom cloud appeared you know, miles and miles away from us, and we just looked at it and went, oh my gosh, what is that? Our first thought wouldn't be, well, logically, let's not assume that someone dropped an atom bomb over there or, or dropped something there. Let's not assume that it was an enemy. Like, your first thought is, holy, what is that? But that, that What goes... just happened here, this could be very bad for us. Once they have some time to calm down, then yeah, sure, they'll come and say, okay, okay, logically, wait a minute. We, it, was, it was something totally different, but I think that we're... This was a very huge amount of the power that was used, enough that they could only consider it possible that a Forsaken was using it. And their view of a Forsaken is 
this exponentially more powerful person than anyone else that's alive right now, uh, which is, or is, you know, we can debate whether or not that's true. Um, I think they're, for them, and their point of yeah, view gotcha. on it is just going like... Voice of reason. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough, I guess. All right. Um, before we go to more Reddit points, uh, let's go over some of our own bullet points. Ken, let me toss it over to you. What do you got for us? What uh, do you want to talk about? Do we want to talk about Egwene now, or do we want to hold off on her? Because I, it took about a chapter or half a chapter for her to really get real there at the very end when uh, she she's always been the realist she really has to me i mean she she's come down against compulsion she's she's the one who's trying to keep both the the white tower and the rebel isodai from being this written as as bad guy uh feeling that we're getting from them because they all just they feel like they're school marming the entire world and she's trying to rein them back we we aren't doing compulsion we're not going to forcibly bond ashaman we're not going to do all of these questionable things that the Aes Sedai and their logic so-called says that we have to do we're going to actually unite the tower and we're going to be ready for Tarma Gaiden that's coming up and we're so, going to we're going to play an important role and now here she is you know um, a prisoner of the white tower again i think this is really a really interesting point with Egwene because she is the, I mean, she has come out and said, you know, we're not going to use compulsion, but she knows the weave for compulsion. It talks about it in this book. Right. And yeah. it says that was something that she learned from Mogedian. She so With the she, sole purpose of yeah. being able, learning how to undo it or uh -huh. something yeah, like and, that. And she wishes she. So she says. Know. So she yeah. says. So she knows the weave for compulsion, which is kind of like the whole, I guess, Harry Potter equivalent, since we did a, an episode on Harry Potter, like knowing the unforgivable curses kind of thing. Right, right. She knows how to do it. Not any other Aes Sedai really know how. Um, and then she also has an inner dialogue that I thought was really interesting when she was talking about, I think it's Nisao or I think it's Nicola, maybe Nicola. Nicola is the, and is the upstart. She, yeah. She's yeah. the accepted or novice or whatever that threatened her a couple of mm -hmm. books back, tried to blackmail her. Yeah. Nisao. And she says, Nisao some, is the yellow the, Aja. Right. Short right. one. Oh man. Not Nisao. I was so paying attention during right? this. Book. We could make a but, uh, wheel of time guess who board in, of oh my <laughs> in Egwene's inner dialogue in one of her chapters, she says when she runs into Nicola again and she runs and she says something about it was a pity that she didn't let Suan um basically have her killed. Have them killed. And she immediately like reprimands herself for thinking right. that way. But as I was reading this because we know it's like my sixth or seventh time through, I was paying attention to some of those smaller things. And it was like one chapter, it tells us, it reminds us that Egwene knows the weave for compulsion. And then the very next chapter, she's in her mind, like lamenting that she can't just off to accept it that are bugging her for no <laughs> other reason other than they know secrets about Egwene. So it's not one of those parent moments. Or it's, I guess it's similar, but it's not one of those like, battle versus good of good and evil like ultimate decision it's more of a i'm going to cover my own butt and get rid of these two now she doesn't do it so to ken's right. point like she's publicly not doing these things but she's thinking about them and so it's just kind of an interesting i guess psychology to think about and this is, why, is. and this is well, another reason why she's probably my favorite character to read sure so far through yeah. 10 books she also and to her credit 
is, I think, the only one of our main characters who is affecting change within the bounds of the rule book. Um, yeah, she's trying to do point. everything by mm-hmm. by the way that it's supposed to be done. Now, she is exploiting loopholes as much as possible, but it's still within the bounds of the rules, whereas Rand is just like, meh, break all bonds is I, what I do. I am the rules. I am the yeah. rules. Uh, Perrin's like, I don't care. I want my wife. And Matt's just kind of doing his own Matt, Matt chaos. Doing Matt thing. He's, he's his own he chaos. Does. He's not working inside the rules, just making the best of whatever situation he's got. Um, so to the... To her credit, she's mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing in probably what would be considered the right way, um, but it just it's annoying sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it's a it's like any movie that you watch where your hero is Batman or whatever, and then you've got your Commissioner Gordon who's like, oh my gosh, like, like well the law says, come on, man, you can't. And that's the annoying. Wayne is the Commissioner Gordon of this. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, no, but like that character is always the annoying one. You're like, oh, can't you just let go of the rules and and let Clint Eastwood just shoot everybody with they're, 44 Magnum? They're the characters that make the worst protagonists because they they don't subscribe to the moral conflict that makes uh, makes a story interesting. You know, like Batman won't kill people. So well, no, but I mean know, that sort of thing. You need, you need. It's like in comedy, you need the straight man to right. set up the punchline, right? That's what and I say. So you, in a story like this, you need your Egwene to set off uh, or, or to to be a counterpoint to the Mats or the Rands yeah. mm-hmm. of the story who don't care about the rules. And I, and I think right. that goes back to our earlier conversation about it's actually probably a really good bit of writing that he's setting her up as the counter, as the you know the opposite to Rand um, not necessarily I can't remember what the phrase that you said but that maybe it, w- it felt forced um, I, I guess not her mm-hmm. it's the situation okay um, that that the Egwene chapters some parts of that felt um, not as real not as natural as some of the other stuff that he's written so far okay so uh, okay anyway what else what else all uh, points. I was um, going to say uh, about Egwene. I'm interested to see uh, about her headaches also because I'm sure. They're, oh, I know what's going on there. I they're being forced by Halima, right? I mean, Halima's bad. Isn't yeah, Halima was, the Forsaken in disguise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about this in book, book eight, nine or book nine, whatever one it was, because there was a whole Reddit argument about whether or not we spoiled something. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't. Suckers. No, we didn't. Um, Although somebody on Reddit sure did. I'll call them out later. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so I actually marked it, but I don't remember where it is exactly. But it was pretty. It was a pretty interesting bit of writing because it was Elaine was in her tent and she was talking about how she has this headache, or she didn't have that bad bad of a headache. And Halima said something about, "Oh, do you want me to, you know, give you a massage and give, give your head have your headache go away?" And Elaine said something, or Egwene said something about, "No, I don't have time for that right now." Which is um, such a gotta, dude thing to yeah. say to the chick, by the we've way. Gotta go, we've got to go work on this thing. Halima, please leave. And it says in there, the line, I wish that I could pull it faster, but it says, and like clockwork or something along those lines, her be, her head began to throb and Halima left the room. Right. And it yeah. was like, eh, okay. Yeah, it becomes pretty clear right then. Yeah. yeah. So he's and- been laying it on pretty heavy in this book that anytime we talk about a headache, we're talking about Halima and the fact that she has bad dreams after Halima fixes her headache, but she can't remember them, and yeah. there's stuff going on. And then right after that, um, one of the Aes Sedai and their warder was found dead. Right. And they said the the same 
residue reader that went to Shadar Logoth said, I read the residues and it was Sidene that killed, killed her. She was killed by Sidene, yeah. And the cool thing was like, she was like, I would assume. Smothered her. Yeah, that they just wrapped flows of air around their head. That's bananas, and by like, the way. They suffocated, which was like, oh, that's sweet. Well, and then and then later did the same thing to the other Aes Sedai. One of the other Aes Sedai who was firmly behind Egwene's mm-hmm. plan snapped their neck with air. You know, oh my goodness, using Sidene. So I mean, mm-hmm. clearly, I mean, clearly Halima is. So yeah, Halima, Halima is causing headaches. To what purpose? We know not. Well, you two do. Well, we do. Yeah. Um, all right. Purposes. So, a- any other Egwene stuff, or should we move on to Ryan's bullet point? If you got one for us, I do. I do. Okay. It's not a very long one, but um, is Matt's marriage an example of the bootstrap paradox? I do, well, He hasn't been married yet. By the end of this book, that's the the doesn't matter though. Okay. His, I don't know what the bootstrap paradox is. So the bootstrap paradox is a paradox dealing with time travel where if an, someone, if a time traveler goes back, for example, if you were to go back in time and give Mozart or Beethoven or someone uh, their greatest work, hand them that paper with it, and then they claim it as their own, centuries go by and it's their own work and everything there um, to get to you on the other end. It's in this infinite loop. Did you, did they, would they have created it if you didn't go back in and, and do right. that? So with Matt, he has said he has he has started the marriage process by saying, "That's my wife." Would That's, he have done that if he had if he had heard not been the told that if he had not heard the prophecy? So is this a bootstrap paradox? Could Matt have avoided Tuon, or or is this a bootstrap? Well, I think it's, it's, it's clear. clear that, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty clear. Yeah, bootstrap. it's clear that it wouldn't have been in his mind unless it was you know. Yeah told him she would have just been another person to run away from at that moment Mm yeah the daughter of the bloody nine moons that's right exactly so is there a so the question then follows on there it's this this is going to sound like a really stupid question to be duh so what then is the purpose of instigating this paradox like way from what standpoint like from Min's or from robert jordan like why did the or it wasn't Min, it, wasn't it, was, Min, the, it was the aelfin yeah, yeah right okay like why did the aelfin need to just give him enough information to make that happen at that moment rather than just you know i'm trying to think of how to best explain it like it just seems that that's a very odd way to go about getting him to that point right yeah it's uh it's a sticky question because then you wonder okay so are they able to just see time laid out in front of them and they understand that this event is not not just supposed to happen, but it will happen. Uh, but then they also see that it will happen only if they say this thing at this exact moment. Mm-hmm. And and then that runs into logical problems. It's or are a big they mess. writing it? Are they writing it that they want this finish or they want this future and in order to get that they have to drop this information to i don't know if it's i don't know if it's an alefin thing as far as like it's them that want it or it's them manipulating it yeah i think honestly it probably is a taviran thing um i would be really curious to know how taviran factor into those alefin in interactions or encounters Mm -hmm. because we see several times in the series where because rand is present something happens like the Aes Sedai swear fealty to him or just things that he like when he's bargaining with the sea folk they're starting to like just say things that they would never say but it's like one in a 10 million chance but because he's Taviran that happened 
And so I'm wondering if it's more of a pattern thing, like the wheel of time pattern versus like an elfin thing. Right. Mm. And so this need the pattern is shaping itself around Matt and this is something that needs to happen at some point for the last battle. And so that's where it gets revealed. Like this is the medium that it's getting revealed to Matt. So I it's think, a Taviran thing versus like an elfin elfin thing. I think the right. elfin are just like the witches from Hamlet or from Macbeth. They're there to drive the narrative and, and compel the character. Uh, they're, they're part that doesn't of, that doesn't really work. They're though. a Taviran tool in they're, a in a fantasy novel that is a secondary creation that's supposed to be. I mean, it this is very well thought through. Even if we don't agree with all the thoughts that Robert Jordan is having, he certainly thought through all this, and I don't think that he would have just put them in there as a as a pure plot device. That's um, that's exactly they, they what they would feel have like to have to some more purpose in the world of Randland. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, they haven't shown up again for nine books. So, and I mean, I think and honestly, it might be something that we that they don't we <coughs> as readers or they as people in Randland don't understand in this turning of the wheel. Maybe the elfin and the elfin have a bigger role to play in a different turning of the wheel in a different I mean, age. But in this one, this is what they do. Right. Because nobody understands who they are or what they do, really. Right. Okay. Uh, well, let's start the process of wrapping this one up. We've got quite a few more Reddit questions to get through, uh, including, and uh, so this will just be a little teaser for the next episode. We're supposed to go through uh, a game of, and I'm going to censor this here, uh, lie with, marry, or kill. <laughs> because this is a family show ish and you know except for those occasions when i forget that it's a family who would you show. know biblically who, who would... would you stone and <laughs> uh yes exactly um so that'll be a lot of fun and uh we'll have a few more bullet points to get through but uh but i wanted to ask for final thoughts right now things that are just you got to get off your chest before we get to the next or uh, move on to the next episode next week um, anything else that you guys want to talk about? Because I, I'll, I'll go no, with I'm... mine first. Mine is, uh, actually, it's in response to a Reddit thing. You know what I hate so much? Val and Luca and his GD <laughs> Circus. <laughs> Family show, everybody. <laughs> I was not happy to see them show back up. And it's not even... If... if Val and Luca and his circus were just in this book in the way that they are. It's really not that big a deal. He's no. he's a guy. He has a few lines. He's a, a vehicle for them to try to escape a situation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's fine. In this book, not that big a deal. But because I hate him so much <laughs> from book five, was it? I think yeah. because oh, I have my. such strong residual memories of Val and Luca in the circus, I just about lost my Stuff. my my family show. <laughs> when he came back in. I, I, I'm going to start a brand new Wheel of Time fan theory along the lines of Bella is the creator and things like oh, that. Oh, nice. I'm excited. And that Val and Luca and his circus are the shuttle that weaves the threads of time. <laughs> 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 that's why everyone has to pass through them at some point in time. Yes. That, I like it. That's awesome. Pass okay. through them to get to the other side of the pattern. <laughs> Any other last thoughts for today? Uh, there. Well, everyone went once. Um, just a, a quote from uh, in here that I really liked. We already talked about it a bit. This is from, uh, this is towards the beginning. We're with Samitsu, I said I here. Uh, 
they were she's talking about how she, uh, they were really trying to figure out how Dahmer Flynn had healed someone had healed uh, stealing um, and she says at least someone could heal stealing even if it was a man a man channeling light how the horror of yesterday became merely the uneasiness of today once you grew accustomed we we yeah. say in 2017 yeah. <laughs> yeah as I I as soon as I read that I marked that up and I went yeah it's it's so true that so much of the things that were just kind of like oh man that's frustrating now at some point in time they were a big deal and eventually they can resurface you know it's uh, it is amazing how that works in real life um earlier i think it was yeah earlier this year the bridge the london bridge attack or there were two london attacks one with a knife and one with a car mm-hmm. um, and these are horrific awful things and if they had happened 20 years ago or 10 or 15 years ago we wouldn't stop talking about them for weeks and and months and just agonizing over exactly what had happened and all the motivations and all this stuff and now in the year 2017 this is fairly commonplace and it's still horrific and we still take note of it but then by the next day or two we simply go on with our lives it's just another piece yeah. of the backdrop yeah. anyway so there there are big things like that or there are little things um you can you can relate that to uh, problems or issues that you have at work or school or whatever uh in s- smaller ways but yeah it's a it's it's a life thing if anything like what i would take from from this is be of those be aware of those things that make you uneasy that are that are kind of like that that are smaller right now and don't ignore them don't ignore those things uh because you know they they can become bigger things again so yeah okay anybody else no can no good no all right let's let's call it good um, you guys don't know this, but I added onto the front of the podcast um, the info about our giveaway. So I'll just mention it again here. Um, make sure that uh, if you want to get in on this giveaway, that you go to iTunes and leave a review. Leave a five-star review that is as snarky and sarcastic and funny as you can make it. I want to see you guys get really creative and if you want to be considered for that, because I can't track you through iTunes, go ahead and uh, copy and paste that. You can throw it anywhere you want. If you don't want to give anybody else ideas, you can just email it to me, Craig at the legendariumpodcast.com. Works fine. Or you can private message us on Facebook or Reddit or whatever. Uh, but yeah, throw those snarky reviews on iTunes and uh, let's do the, this. The winner will likely have three or four family show references towards Craig. Family. So. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that many reviews right now, so don't think that you can go steal someone else's and use it either. That's we, true. we know all of the reviews that we currently have, <laughs> all, both of them. <laughs> well, it does date stamp them. And so, so yeah. So, uh, anyway, I look forward to reading those. I've seen the Reddit comments. I know you guys uh, are freaking hilarious out there. Um, and so, Asmodian underscore. Asmodian <laughs> underscore is, uh, I, I'm tempted just to just say, no, you're you're too smart you're disqualified (laughs) so uh no i'm just kidding everybody go on there and do that and let us know of your comments so that we can uh, get you entered for that drawing um it's going to be very very non-scientific we're going to have the panel of the four of us decide which one is the best (laughs) and uh we'll give you i think we'll give you until not the next uh crossroads of twilight one uh but we'll go what's the next book knife of dreams 
Yep. Uh, so we'll decide on a winner and announce that in the first Knife of Dreams recording. Uh, let you know who won that and uh, get you that prize sent out. We've got to take a few weeks to pass that book around and and we'll uh, put our marginal notes in there. So anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure you go to uh, reddit.com slash the... Oh, no, hang on. Let me do this again. Thelegendarium.reddit.com and go to patreon.com slash legendarium. I did it. And support the show there. It's only and taken 140 some odd episodes. I know. You're such a big boy. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you for the next Crossroads of Twilight. Yeah.